Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number six of the Draft Class Dropouts podcast, your one-stop shop for everything about the NBA draft. As always, I am Jackson, joined today by my lovely co-hosts, Garrett and Tim. Fellas, how are we doing today? Doing well, man. How about yourself? You know, I'm, I'm doing good. We're we're very close. You can count on a single hand how many days we are from the NBA draft. The, the NBA season is over. The draft is almost here. You could smell the smoke in the air, folks. But before we hop into that today, Tim, how are you doing? Dude, I am so excited for the draft. Like, I mean, usually I get excited, but like this year, it's, it's right up there, man. No, absolutely. We are, I think, I think we're exactly five days away from the draft at the time of this recording. I think in like exactly like five days from now, the draft will be getting started and we're going to, we're, we're going to see who goes where we're going to see who makes mistakes. We're going to see who we're, we're going to see who makes, who gets, who gets fired basically. But we, we are doing an episode <laughs> today. We have a mailbag episode. We've been Thankfully, a lot of people have submitted questions for us. We're going to be answering those questions today. And gentlemen, I think there's no better way to start this episode than diving right into our questions, if that's cool with y'all. Sure, definitely. All right, here we go. Our first question is going to be, who have been the prospects your views on them evolved the most during the draft cycle this year? Um, I guess I'll start first. Uh, so I posted my board uh, on Twitter Friday and most of the questions I got were about the fact that I had Tari Eason in the early second round. And I think he's on Twitter generally like a top 20 guy on almost all boards. Um, and I think he challenged my process the most this year of any prospect. Because I, I think sometimes uh, there are certain elements to players' games where I just kind of disqualify them as prospects that I'm going to be interested in that other people who review... Uh, who, who've watched the draft kind of maybe don't have such a disqualifying factor. For me, in, in it for Easton, it's his offense. Um, his, his offhand is really weak finishing, and it's also pretty weak off the bounce. He's he's really a dominant right-hand uh, player, and uh, I think that's a pretty difficult limitation for a guy who, yes, he flourishes really well offensively one-on-one, but uh, when he has to handle help defense, he really struggles. Uh, not being able to go to your other hand and, and kind of play make like that is to me going to be a difficult task for him development wise to try to figure that out. Um, his three point shot seems fine, but like I'm not ready to project to be anything outstanding. And uh, he's had a pretty good pull up in college, but also it's a lot of it is shooting over guys. And I, I just don't know that it'll be as effective when he's actually being defended by players who are similar build to him. Uh, but defensively, obviously, he's still a really good prospect. He's got like all the defensive indicators, high steals, high blocks, huge hands, great strength. Uh, but I also don't like his off-ball defense, and I think when we're talking about players who have changed the way we think this draft, I think that's been something I've really struggled with because I've generally been always really low on players who can't defend off-ball. And Easton can defend off-ball, but I, I think he's going to have to make some strides processing wise on that side. So yeah, he's been a guy who's like completely, I've, I've just gone up and down on him all cycle where I'm like feeling the tug and pull of other people thinking differently. And then at the same time, like trying not to put him too low just because he doesn't fit what I normally think of in a prospect. Um, so that, that would be my pick. I'm going to go to you, Tim, who, who's been, uh, who's been, who have been your prospect or your prospects who, you, who your views on them have evolved the most during this draft cycle. 
Yeah, um, I think for me it would be Patrick Baldwin Jr. Uh, he, I think he was pretty high on all of our boards at the start of the season and uh, didn't have a great freshman season and uh, at the moment is sitting in the mid to late 30s on my board. And I think uh, even even when he was struggling at the start of the season, I still had him as a late lotto kind of level prospect. And uh, I think over time, I just... You know, you talk with people, and uh, I guess you kind of formulate, um, you know, your philosophy um, on these sorts of confusing and complex prospects. And with someone like Patrick Baldwin Jr., initially, a lot of my argument backing him up was relying on high school priors. And that was pretty much the basis of it. Uh, You could throw in some um, ideas about um, how he looks mechanically when shooting the basketball, and I guess the value of having someone of his size being able to potentially shoot at a prolific rate. Um, but over time, I feel like my view changed in terms of um, not relying on those sorts of aspects as much. And instead, kind of looking at the reality of the risk you're having, where he is a shooting specialist prospect. And I guess over the course of the season, uh, the way I value um, those those sorts of archetypes um, definitely diminished. So whereas initially I viewed Patrick Baldwin as this underperformer who could be one of the better shooters in the NBA, by season end, I kind of still view it similarly where I understand this upside. Um, but it's not as valuable to me because in reality, if he does pan out, we're seeing that these kind of shooting specialist prospects or players aren't necessarily getting um, the playing time um, that you think that warrants uh, in the postseason, and especially when they've got defensive deficiencies. And uh, if you look at how Patrick Baldwin fared in his freshman season, and you combine that with his athletic traits, it's pretty hard to project him uh, being neutral or you know even a positive on the defensive end. So yeah, I guess with Patrick Baldwin. It was really just this change in how I value his play style and how much I was valuing the reality of the risk compared to high school priors and ideally um, the ideal kind of version of him. All right. Speaking of Patrick Baldwin, I saw something on Twitter today that I want us to talk about. And, you know, I was uh, I don't even remember who said it, but there was a few people talking about the uh, the potential that Patrick Baldwin Jr. could go undrafted. I want to get both of y'all's thoughts on that. Do y'all think that's possible? Do you th- guys think that's like over exaggerated or wh- how do you guys feel about that? Do you believe it's real or what? In a draft like this, I don't want to say anything is impossible. Um, we were talking about this before we were recording where like anything could really happen. Um, and I, I guess we can say that about every year, but I, I think truly this is going to be uh, a, a pretty random year of guys going high, uh, going too low, or maybe just falling out altogether. So I would still say it's unlikely. Like if you're if you're a team in the fifties and he's there, I think it's a pretty worthwhile, uh, I guess, upside swing, uh, similar to Brandon Boston Jr. in that range, which we actually talked about a few episodes ago, but. Yeah, I see it as unlikely, but I'm not going to roll it out completely. Yeah, I think for me, I, I would agree that it's probably unlikely that he goes undrafted, especially when we saw like BJ Boston. Like That's probably around the same range that would be his floor, if I were to guess. I would probably like lean like most likely not going undrafted. However, 
I mean, in today's NBA, where the guys who go in the late second are really just kind of getting on two-way contracts, I don't know that going undrafted or, or getting drafted is really like a huge difference if he's dropping that far. So, you know, if anything, it just prevents him from going to his preferred destination. So if, I think in any scenario where he's not going to top 45, it's kind of like a dramatic fall for him. And uh, I could see it definitely happening. I just don't know how far it's going to go or if maybe he goes undrafted because he wants to find the right spot for himself. Who knows? But yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I mean, we've always talked about like his value, like jumping all over the place. So, I mean... In like five days, we're going to figure out where like NBA team value him, whether he's going to be undrafted. But like also, are, would it totally surprise you guys if like a team at like the end of the first takes him? Like, I honestly wouldn't be surprised by that. But yeah, not at all. No, there's a definite possibility. Yeah, get him on a four year contract. Yeah, I could definitely see a team doing it. So I think his the uh, I mean, I think I think his draft slot really just depends on what a team thinks of him. But, uh, you know, I think that was some good stuff right there. Let's move on to our next question. And this one is going to be, which player are you most scared of ending up in a bad de- developmental de- environment? And you want to tackle this one first? I've got to think about it a bit. Do you have any initial thoughts? Uh, just out of personal investment, I'm going to say Jaden Ivey. <laughs> to where? <laughs> no. Uh-huh, do it. Nope. Come on. I'm not saying it. You know. I know you who know it is. I, know, I can hint who but it is. It, 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 in my opinion, Jaden Ivey has the highest upside in this class. Uh, I'll be releasing an article soon where I'm basically saying as much. Um, I still think, though, that he has some major holes in his game he's going to have to work through and some bad tendencies as well, and that like a, a good coaching staff in front of office will need to tackle that methodically for Jaden Ivey to hit all those high outcomes that I'm hoping for him. So I, I worry about him going somewhere where there's like a complacency around addressing the flaws in his game because he's already playing well off the jump or where he's asked to do too much early and his bad habits just like get worse. Um, so, yeah, I, I just want to make sure that he's in a front, a front office or coaching staff where they can bring him along the right way and give him good guidance as he works through his game. All right, before we yeah. move on to Tim, I, what's the team that you don't want Jaden Ivey going to? You, you can say it, right? All right, your silence is an answer. Tim, go ahead. You're up. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of thinking like a lot of a lot of my like in a selfish way of wanting guys to succeed. A lot of my top twenty guys I feel are pretty established players, kind of like especially at the later end of that, like EJ Liddell through Jake Laravia. But once you get a bit past that, I've got a few project guys which I'd really want to see pan out. And there's guys like Max Christie and John Butler. Um, I think John Butler especially, I want to see in a good development spot because uh, if he doesn't, it's just going to be so disappointing because of how exciting he could be. Um, I, I, he's got a long way to go and he really needs that level of support and um, the resources invested into him. Uh, to become even, I'd say like a rota- rotation level player, there's a lot of risk to a guy like him. So I feel like drafting John Butler isn't uh, a great idea for every team, especially if you don't trust your player development or don't have a spot for him to, um, I guess, get the support he needs. 
I have a uh, I have a bit of a theory where John Butler is going to go come draft night, and I want you guys to hear me out on this. And I want everyone to remember me saying this. I have a sneaky suspicion, other than the Toronto Raptors are going to take John Butler, and I'm going to tell you now. We all know how Raptors fans are. I'm not telling you what that means. You infer what that means on your own. <laughs> they're going to call him the Giannis stopper up until he finally plays Giannis, people. I'm telling you now, that's what they're going to do. This entire offseason will be dedicated to them calling John Butler the Giannis stopper, and they're going to hail uh, Masai as, as the savior. He's shut down Giannis. That's all I have to say. You infer what you want from that. I'm just telling you what I think will happen. That's just my two cents right there, though. I love that theory because it's just so... like. It involves a narrative. It involves something which actually happens. I, that's fun. That's fun. Write it down, folks. Be sure to remember this. When it happens on draft night and you're hearing people <laughs> call John Butler the Giannis stopper, and I just want to let you know, I, I was the first one to tell you all this. And yeah. Uh, let's let's go ahead and move on to our uh, next question. Uh, this one is about a future draft prospect. It says, if Chris Murray breaks out like his brother, that is Keegan Murray for those who are unaware, how much further will he fall because of age? What's this draft ceiling? Yeah, I like this question a lot. I'm quite a uh, Chris Murray fan. Um, he'll be 22, as far as I'm aware, um, by the time he's uh, getting drafted next year. Um, I think there's a decent chance he breaks out. Uh, he really impressed me. I, th- I think he was a better defender, or at least a better perimeter defender than Keegan Murray, and um, obviously much more shooting-oriented, where um, Murray does a lot more of his damage uh, inside the paint and in the post. Um, I think it's hard to say how far he'll fall, because honestly, all it takes is one team liking that, and we're seeing someone like, even though it's a, a very weak draft, we're seeing someone like Igbaji, uh most likely going in the lottery, despite being 22 years old, and it would probably take an Igbaji level season of, I guess, a combination of like team success and um, shooting efficiency, for Murray to be in, let's say, like a top 20, 25 conversation uh, next season. So I don't know if age would necessarily be the thing uh, that makes him fall, but it's probably more likely uh, just just his role and his archetype as a shooting specialist. Um, I don't know. Maybe he maybe he does go lottery. We've we've seen teams, you know, fall in love with these Igbaji types or Corey Kispert types. So it's really hard to say at this stage, but that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I to answer the first part about age, I actually honestly don't think it's really going to matter um, because we haven't really seen like years and years of him in the league. I mean, in the NCAA's, I should say, like to be talking about him as a guy who never really broke out. And, and until now and now we're wondering at the breakouts be, just because he's like stronger faster than younger guys in the in the college game we've only seen two years of him and this will be his third year and he played well off of keegan last year but speaking of keegan i i think his stock is going to be very weirdly tied to keegan murray's by a lot of the media i just see that, like right away first of all the fact that while they're on the same team keegan appeared to outplay Chris and, and gather a larger offensive role last year. I think that probably puts a ceiling on how high you can go um, in terms of like not being drafted, probably not being drafted higher than where Keegan will go. So maybe like late lotto is already kind of like a ceiling. And then also his stock might be kind of tied to how Keegan plays in his rookie year in the league. Like if Keegan isn't like immediately impactful, 
are people going to start like or like or have some struggles are people just going to automatically like associate the two and hurt chris's stock as a result or help his stock if keegan's just like really great i mean like we talked about how they're different players but i just think that kind of like association is probably going to be pretty influential on people um but i i think also the 2023 draft just if people aren't aware the lottery is going to be way deeper than 2022 you know we had a lot of players who this year kind of didn't meet expectations and maybe would have had a deeper lottery of guys kind of hit the outcomes that we were expecting in their first year in college or elsewhere. But at, even if that were the case, 2023 would be deeper. And so I think it's probably going to be tough for Chris Murray to go lo- go for, uh, earlier than like the 20s or or maybe the late teens. But uh, I don't know. It, it, there's so many different narratives that could go in so many directions with him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really agree with what you said, Garrett, when you were talking about how like the media is going to tie a lot of Chris Murray stock to Keegan Murray stock. And I, I just feel like, you know, the last name association, back to back drafts, I feel like that's 100 percent you know, going to be true. Just something we see a lot. So I just want to give you your props for that one. But we're going to go ahead and move on to our next mailbag submission. This one says, where would you have Don Barlow if he had a handle? This is a I, I was reading this one ahead of time. Uh and I, I'm still like trying to think think it through. So he's six foot ten. He has a little bit of spacing. He mo- he moves well when he doesn't have the ball in his hands. And uh, you know, I, I think that's like most to sell. He's like a, a good mover and and can maybe space a little bit. The handle is kind of questionable for what he likes to do, where he likes to take it from the perimeter and drive in, rather than maybe being like scoring more in the post traditionally. But with his handle, I have like questions about whether that'll be that particularly effective, and whether or not he's more of just like an off-ball player right now, like maybe off-ball rim runner a little bit. Um, yeah, I think with a handle, pretty changes it pretty dramatically. There aren't that many six ten guys with a handle, right? And if he's already got some ability to space, already has like pretty decent feel on the court. I don't know. I, th- I think that's pretty easily a first rounder. Uh, but curious what you all think. Yeah, so I've got Don Barlow currently in the 40s. Um, and this is really intriguing to me. I don't think the handle is necessarily the area that we should be looking at that would kind of like transcend what he is as a player. But I think it's more his finishing around the rim when driving. Uh, towards it from the perimeter of course like the handle probably does need a little bit of tightening but it's far better than a lot of other 16 guys um who are kind of more on the big man side of things than the wing side of things like a like a jovic per se but um yeah a, a lot of the time when he is um attacking from the perimeter um he struggles with finishing through um contact on like a straight line drive um, which is quite problematic. Uh, but the thing is, if, if he makes, let's say he makes some sort of uh, unexpected jump in that area, uh, you know, the handle, the, the flashes of it uh, become something substantial, and um, I guess the ability to play um, going downhill just improves um, in a way we weren't necessarily expecting. Suddenly you have a really interesting player who's just opened his entire game. Um, you know, a, a little bit of shooting development as well, like just gradual development to all these areas and each of them complement each other and open up pathways which previously weren't there. 
And I know you can say that about a lot of players, but for someone like Dom Barlow, it is really intriguing for me. Um, I, like, I don't want to like throw out throw out names or like kind of like outlier development paths, but what if he sees some similar developments to someone like a Pascal Siakam? What if, what if some of the things which happened for Siakam, which are, were totally unexpected, and you know you can't place those expectations of development on any prospect, but I just can't help but think like, what if? And I guess that's the whole point of this um, question. So, like, if Don Barlow uh, is a bit better at attacking the room with his handle, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely thinking, like, early 20s at, lower, at, at the lowest. Like, I'd, in a class like this especially, I'd be willing to, you know, just the, the fuck it we ball pick. Like, I like this guy a lot. And if that's a thing, I'm all in. Yeah, I think, like, talking about when you were mentioning his kind of struggles of finishing at the rim, I think being like an exclusively straight line driver in my opinion at this point in his career kind of limits how much the ball would be put in his hands and given that responsibility to do what he likes to do at the next level like if he's not one of the top handlers on the floor he's probably not going to be attacking on the bounce much so even if his handle isn't like problematic at this point just by nature not being particularly great he at most will probably just attack closeouts every once in a while so if he had a real handle you could talk about him attacking the rim from different angles and having the ability to kind of fool defenders a lot more than right now when he's pretty pretty predictable. I think that completely unlocks a new element of his game if he has it, and that's partly why I would be higher on him. Yeah, and if he if he does unlock that, he's a pretty good passer uh, positionally and um, makes some pretty good reads um, going downhill at the moment. So if he's able to be um, to actually get downhill a little bit better. Uh, he could be a really productive player in those sorts of situations. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a big Don Barlow fan. The Don Barlow agenda is thriving. No, I mean for sure. I mean, I think it's interesting because, like you guys said, six ten, some ability to space the floor. So I think you add the uh, the handle and his value just instantly goes up. We're going to be moving on now to our next mailbag submission. This one says, "Would you take Yannick and Sosa at any pick in this class?" Thoughts, fellas. I have him at 61 on my board that I just published, so I, it might not be a very interesting question, or interesting answer, I should say. No, the question's, the question's good. My answer might not be that interesting. I mean, like, if you're in, like, the late second round and you want to stash a guy, I, I have no issue with him being taken top 60, and I would be fine with it. The, the, the bigger thing is, though, that I'm, like, just kind of confused why he stayed in the draft. I felt like I mean, I don't, I don't know how international scouts are reporting on his game back to NBA teams. So maybe some of them are getting intel where they think that they're going to take him a little higher than where I would. But I, it feels like he's still pretty far away. And I felt like maybe if he had made more development next year, he could have been drafted higher than where he'll probably go. So I, I was a little bit confused by that decision. But yeah, I would still take him probably at the end of the second if I was in a, the right team situation. Yeah, on my board he's like 70th, but he's not really that much of a difference between like 60th and 70th to me, so technically he's draftable. Uh, but I think I think there's a specific type of team which would be interested in drafting him. Like if you're a team, the team you're working with has um, like doesn't really have intentions of giving like minutes to a rookie contract player. Um, he becomes a pretty interesting high-risk gamble as a draft and stash. 
Um, and, and the important part of, I guess, drafting him would be gaining his draft rights um, rather than him just being a potential signing in the future. You've got a bit more certainty if you really like him that much and you can like monitor him over the next few years. But I, I find him really hard to get excited about. I mean, early in the season when he was like a projected top 10 pick, I was like, oh, yeah, he's one of the first first prospects playing. I'll go check him out. And it was uh, it was very rough. And, I mean, it's got better. And there's this idealistic version of him, which, you know, is an NBA player. But the risk is pretty big. So it's, it's hard to get excited about um, Yannick, even if it's, like, pick 60. I, I also, like, I think one of the big questions I have with him right now that could maybe be answered with an off-season of strength and conditioning um, in Spain is, is he really a five at his kind of build? He's he's an amazing mover, and so the idea that as a center he'd be able to run the floor like he does or that he'd be able to switch onto so many different positions is appealing, but, like, without any post-game really at all, and without, and I know you don't have to have a post game in the modern game, but like he doesn't really have any offense from any area of the court at this point. He's not he's not a great screener either. Is he really like a, a, your traditional five? No. Is he a five at all? I also question that. I think he's probably a four, and then the fact that he doesn't shoot at all is pretty, or or really handle it is pretty concerning. So I think he has yeah. massive holes in his game right now. That with another offseason, maybe we start to see flashes of development. But instead, we just have to draft on pure athleticism early right now, which is kind of rough. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the idea of him is kind of just an athlete that you can check out there, and he probably is more uh, better suited for the power forward position. Um, I think he could play play the five in spurts, uh, but if he if he is developing to the point where he is a, a rotation player, I, I do think it's more likely that he'll see time at the four than the five. All right, let's move on to our next mailbag submission. This one is this one is directed straight at you, Garrett, but obviously, Tim, feel free to butt in after. <laughs> Garrett, explain Peyton Watson. They want to know. I'm ready. Yeah, I think um, I think I think there's been a lot of negativity around Peyton Watson uh, because of his college situation. Um, he he went to UCLA, which people were already a little bit concerned about in the preseason because they already had Jaime Jaquez, Johnny Juzang, other wings on the roster, Jules Bernard. Um, and they were kind of wondering if you would ever get what kind of minute loads he would get. And the answer is almost none. <laughs> like he barely played. And he also had, a, my understanding, some ankle injuries as well that were hindering him throughout the year. So I have to go off of flashes in high school tape here. And I still really love his high school tape. Um, particularly defensively. I think he's maybe the most underrated defender in this draft. Not not saying he's one of the best defenders in the draft, but he's certainly one of the most underrated because people are just kind of so dismissive of his game. I, I think that he he has really good knowledge of where to be on the floor, and he has perfect wing size to be a defensive wing stopper. Um, and he, he's great on ball, has great blocking uh, kind of like instincts. Um, can get down with guards, uh, can run the floor pretty really well. I really like him defensively, and I think those are the building blocks for him to get minutes in the NBA early on in his career. Um, if you like, if you look at his high school tape, 
and, and see his the, the way he gets into his shots, his shooting profile is really interesting if a team can unlock his touch because the touch is not there yet, particularly off the bounce. But he can get into his shot off the bounce very easily um, and from a lot of different angles. And I, I really like that about him. He ha- his, fla- his handle has a lot of flashes to it and a lot of flashiness. Like He has a lot of really cool dribble moves for a guy his size, 6'7", six, 6'8". With a long wingspan, he can still ha- he can still like completely take a dude off off the dribble, but I think his handle is pretty far behind in terms of that like, consistency. I think that's maybe part of the reason he didn't get a lot of minutes at UCLA, and you see it on in high school tape as well. This is a guy who like if you if anyone read PD Webb's piece on Peyton Watson, you'll know about how much time he missed leading up to his year at UCLA because of COVID years. Uh, you know, playing California. So he missed a lot of time. Um, I think that that shows in his kind of like footwork in terms of like he, a lot of times he starts moving his feet before he starts dribbling. A lot of times he's not ready to gather the ball at the right moments. Uh, gets kind of spooked by guys uh, getting in front of him off the bounce. Stuff that like with experience you'd be more comfortable with, I hope, uh, would, would, would be... That kind of stuff gives me hope that maybe he can fix that. But I think the handle might be the thing that, you know, dooms him if he doesn't work out. But for now, maybe being a spot-up shooter and being a, a great defender is, is is the sell. So I have him in the early second round based off tools mostly and defensive potential. Tim, do you have anything you want to say about Peyton Watson? Absolutely nothing. There is there is nothing I can say that can uh, give a better evaluation of Peyton Watson than what Garrett just said. So, yeah, I've I've got him at like fifty three or so, kind of in the early fifties. Um, I don't really value um, the risk on him as much, and I'm not as confident that um, he's going to come around as a, as a prospect eventually. So that kind of reflects my ranking, but I think. Uh, Garrett totally nailed um, what makes him intriguing and why you might just um, make that sort of selection earlier in the draft. And, and let me say that like the early second round grade, we were just talking about the BJ Bostons and Patrick Baldwin's of the of the world. You know, Peyton Watson is in that same class of like disappointing college stats, disappointing college performance versus incredibly high high school expectations and and like trying to weigh high school versus college is difficult i think this i have actually peyton watson and patrick baldwin within like i'm gonna say five or six picks of each other i'm not looking at my board right now um and i think that this class the talent really drops off in the second round really hard after a point and I would just rather bet on high school priors with some of these guys over guys who kind of like at most are maybe like the eighth or ninth guy in your rotation in a good outcome. So that's partly behind my ranking. I think last year in deeper class, I would certainly have Peyton Watson a lot lower. All right. I mean, you know what? I, I appreciate you going at so in depth on to Peyton Watson. Let's go ahead and move on to our next mailbag submission. This one is what has changed about your approach to prospects that is deferred from previous drafts? Yeah, I think for me, um, I've kind of learnt to accept that my thoughts are going to change a lot throughout the cycle. Um, usually I've had a problem of kind of creating these uh, 
these ideas of what I think of the class at the very start and holding on to them too tightly and having that sort of bias um, by season end where I'm like, hey, I said this at the start, it's going to look kind of uh, silly if I, don't, if I don't stick to that or like, you know, oh, I really liked this guy at the start. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm, I'm thinking something wrong or I'm missing something that I was formerly thinking. So whereas this season, there's, there's, there's takes that I made at the start of the year and as time has progressed, I've kind of, I've let go of them. I've, you know, developments have happened, um, things have changed. And my view on particular aspects of um, my scouting philosophy have changed. And I think that's absolutely okay. So in previous drafts, I haven't been as okay with that. And I'm really personally happy that I've kind of come to those conclusions and um, been kind of, uh, I've kind of let go of the ego of having to back up um, claims I've made and kind of just like, you know, go with the flow. Things are allowed to change. Yeah, I think that's a great approach to have. Um, I, I think if you if you establish a take and just refuse to back off of it or refuse to update it with new information or with new perspectives, then you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. You know, it's impossible for everyone who evaluates draft prospects to have a strong opinion on every prospect in a draft. And the fact the fact is, you're going to have people who are more focused on a prospect than you bring up new ideas that aren't your own and, and you should take them into account because like I said, you, you just can't have, you can't, you can't fully evaluate every prospect in every draft. It's just impossible. There's too many games to watch. Um, I think for me, uh, I've kind of m developed more my idea of evaluating guys based on the work that they need to do to play on an NBA floor at all versus the work that they need to do to make major steps in their game that kind of elevate them. Uh, I think Bryce McGowan's is a great example of this. Um, he's a guy who, in all of his most positive outcomes, could be an all-star player, uh, simply because he has this incredible building block to work with, with his ability to finish at the rim and get to the rim off the off the bounce. Um, the, the like the difference in types of angles he takes, like the the authority that he gets there with, the fact that he's like not very strong right now and still is finishing at the rim in Big Ten play. I mean, that's like an incredible building block. So he's already got this like key skill that'll get him on the NBA floor, right? Um, but the, the stuff that he has to do to take major step, steps in his game to the point where he's an all-star level player are very different from what he does well now. Um, like, he needs to shore up his de defense. Like, the defensive effort this year just wasn't there. And when it was, he's still like, struggled pretty mightily in understanding offensive concepts on that side of the floor. Uh, on top of that, like he really wasn't that great of a passer this year. Like you kind of want to hope that a guy who you're going to have driving to the rim constantly throughout the game is going to be able to know how to kick out to his men uh, on the perimeter and elsewhere. So the kind of stuff that he like just really struggles with are major steps he has to take to get to that highest level. And I think I've gotten better at evaluating like the strides that have to be made for a player to get to those upper outcomes and like where they should be on your board. I think that's probably the area I've worked on the most in like my processing. Yeah, I completely agree with the idea of like we don't have to, uh, and it's borderline impossible to fully evaluate uh, everyone in the class. Um, 
huge amount of credit goes out to the guys who are able to go through that much film. Um, but, I mean, it's not for all of us, and that's absolutely okay. Like, NBA teams, they don't have one scout cover over 100 guys fully in a season. Uh, it's unreasonable. It's a team effort scouting um, prospects. And, yeah, I think I think <laughs> it's, it's obvious, but quality over quantity matters a lot, and I think that's going to be a big focus for me uh, next season is instead of trying to... Um, I guess, fine-tune the, the 60 through 80 range of a big board uh, is really just keying in on who I think the best 20 players are and uh, producing some good work uh, showing that or evaluating them. And um, I, I think a lot of people um, would really benefit from um, becoming more okay with um, doing, doing less um, prospect-wise and uh, doing more... Uh, individual evaluation wise yeah i 100% agree that's going to be my process next year too is to really hone in on the first round guys maybe some of the early second round guys definitely still watch guys who are going to be outside that range because you might find people like i was watching jalen williams back in december asking why people had him in the 90s on espn uh, over at santa clara but like you know you could find those gems uh, by doing that but at the end of the day you're gonna probably if you're in the nba front office you're gonna care about what your first round pick does above all else and uh i'm definitely gonna be focusing more on that next year all right next mailbag submission is do you value more highly a prospect who creates good looks but doesn't finish finish them or a prospect who basically who doesn't create good looks but hits them basically wesley versus sharp okay so a prospect who creates good looks but doesn't finish them or a prospect who, I was still thinking about this, or a prospect who doesn't create good looks but hits them. So the first one is Blake Wesley, and the second one is uh, Shane Sharp, I guess. So it's like a shot creation versus touch argument. Like, which one do you value more? Would you all say that's a fair way to interpret that? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think shot creation is just not something that you can necessarily... Like it's not it, there's there's something innate in shot creation that while you can work on it, it's something that you have or you don't in in many cases. And Blake Wesley definitely has shot creation. Uh, it's the what happens afterwards that's the question right now, like whether it actually goes in the hoop, which uh, more often than not doesn't. I have Blake Wesley higher than Shaden Sharp. I know that's a very uncommon opinion. Um, but I personally think that shot creation at the rim and rim pressure is the single most uh, important contribution that a player can make on a roster these days outside of defensive versatility. Um, so for me, I, I want to chase after guys who have that rim pressure and hope that I can improve their touch. Touch seems to be something that's a bit easier to improve with NBA training than uh, maybe like footwork that gets you to the rim with Shane Sharp's first step which is kind of questionable but i still like shane sharp he is a tough shot maker particularly like those step back threes that he really likes uh, he cover he also can cover a lot of ground when he uh goes that step back to get himself a lot of space so i don't know that they're ne necessarily bad shots just not as efficient so i i don't know i i would go shot creation first yeah, at the end of the day, basketball is all about advantage creation and problem solving. 
Um, and that's where I, in this instance, I, st I still believe Shaden Sharp is a better prospect than Blake Wesley. Uh, but in terms of this specific aspect, uh, I think I would value someone who creates good looks um, over someone who doesn't um, but hits them. And uh, yeah, the reason for that pretty much um, is there's a lot more room for development with someone who creates good looks. Because as you said, there, there is something innate about shot creation. Um, and if, if someone has the ability to create advantages, um, I mean, that's, that's just the name of the game. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take that one. I, I feel like, I feel like I'm rambling, but, um, I, I just feel like it's that simple where if you've got a prospect who, um, is currently able to create an advantage, uh, but doesn't necessarily convert on them, um, projections, projection is what this is all about. And that gives a lot more room to project than someone who may be hitting these shots but doesn't have the capability of uh, creating them to the same extent. Um, so, I mean, that second player might be less risky in that sort of regard. Uh, but the first player is going to benefit so much more from NBA development and um, has a much more higher, higher ceiling uh, in this regard. So... I think it then becomes a debate of, um, I guess, what, what other aspects of um, the prospect exist and how they might complement or compensate um, for the, for these areas. Uh, but yeah, I think you got to go with the guy who, um, in, in this aspect, um, who's able to create advantages. Yeah, and with questions like this, you can ever take it as like, in a vacuum, would you take touch with no shot creation or shot creation with no touch? I mean, that just like, doesn't exist in the league. In yeah. reality, it's going to be some level of both. So, like, Blake Wesley's touch is really poor right now. Uh, like, probably some of the weakest touch in the draft, honestly, of guys who, like, should get drafted. And Shane Sharp, on the other hand, like, I, I like he does have shot creation. It's just maybe not at Blake Wesley's level where Blake Wesley's shot creation is, in my opinion, some of the best in the class. So even even in a question like this, where it's like a in a vacuum question, you still have to take into account that you can't have one without the other, particularly shot creation without touch, which is pretty rough. No, I think those were uh, good answers. But uh, let's go ahead and move on to our next mailback submission. This one, this this is the most serious question we've gotten today, fellas. So go ahead and get ready to answer this one. This one comes from Wolves Culture on Twitter. He asks, "Will you marry me?" Tim, I think oh. this is for you. Yeah, this is a, this is a tough one. Um, big fan of the dude, but we've seen his big boards, and uh, I don't know if I could I could be with someone with uh sorts of big boards. He was he was dissing a few of my guys the past few seasons, so. Sorry, mate, but that's going to have that, to be a no. That's a Talk major red flag for you. Major red flag. Like, I'll be dealing with that. Kev, do you have any thoughts about this? Do you think think Tim's making the right call here? I mean, I don't know. I mean, first of all, you got to consider this: New Zealand, Argentina. That's a pretty long distance, guys. But I mean, it is. If, it is. if the what do you mean? it's there, the same hemisphere. Is it? I'm not doing this. I'm not. We're not. We're not. We're not making me do grade school history questions or geography, whatever it's called. Anyways, that seems like a far distance away from each other. But if the love is there, the love is there. But I don't know. It seems. It seems like Tim doesn't want it. So if I was I'm, Tim, uh, I would. Uh, I would advise him to stay against it. It doesn't seem like his heart's in this. I'm officially withdrawing my name from the uh, 2022 proposal. Oh man. 
I'll see what it's like next cycle. See if I, I get some more interest in. Uh, yeah, you know. so yeah, yeah. Wolf's culture. If I could just uh, give you any advice, just keep working on your game. Uh, maybe next year you have a bigger role. Work on your body language. It, it, maybe next year you have a bigger role in Tim's <laughs> life, and he might he might value you a little more. You also got to work on your body language. You don't want to look uninterested out there, you know. So yeah, that's also that's also big when it comes to scouting. So there you go. Got got to work on the motor. Of course, look at this you, analysis. Of course. All right, our last question. This, is, this can I just say this is the best analysis we did on the pod so far? I think it's the best analysis in all six episodes if we're keeping it real. But that's just. I think me. it's at least yeah. in the past like three years. You know. Yeah. This, this is <laughs> look. This, if you're ever wondering, hey, why would I listen to the draft class dropouts? Your one stop shop for all things all NBA draft over any other draft podcast. There you go. Where I don't, you're not going to get that analysis anywhere else, people. So that's all I have to say. So that that's why you should consider us as your number one podcast. For the NBA draft, rate us five stars, by the way. Anyways, last mailbag submission of the day, and this one is a good one to end on. Five days into the NBA draft, the question is, our predicted biggest draft day surprises. Have you come up with any, Garrett? About, for, the, for the listeners, before we were talking, um, Garrett was pretty stumped on this one. Um, I've got a few up my sleeve, but I'm, I'm interested to see if he's thought of any. Uh, it's like I'm at a restaurant, and I'll say, I'll just order something if it gets to me. Yeah. All right, Tim, okay. you go first. Um, you want me to go first? Okay, yeah, Tim, you so go first. I was saying before, I think we're going to see a lot of chaos and havoc in, in this uh, draft. And um, I think as a result of that, we could see some um, just younger, more under-discussed players um, going a lot higher than we anticipated. So, I mean, I don't think it would be unreasonable um, to expect someone uh, like... I mean, John Butler going top 20, it could happen. Uh, Jan Montero, that could be really interesting. We could see some sophomores, um, like Justin Lewis, Ryan Rollins. Um, that would be pretty crazy if they went top 20, top 25. Uh, but I think it could legitimately happen. Um, what if a team uh, decides to roll the dice on someone like Josh Minot? Like, let's say the Spurs at 20. Like, how... I don't think it's unreasonable. I think we could genuinely just see some wild, out of left field picks. I don't know if we're going to see like a Josh Primo level selection, um, but I, I'm all for it. I think it could just be a lot of fun. All right, I have one. I think I and also I just want to say this is my surprise. It's going to happen on draft night, and I'm just saying now a lot of draft Twitter is going to want to look away because this one it's going to hit. <laughs> I, uh, I I have a this isn't sourced or anything. I have nothing about this. I just have a sneaky suspicion, a feeling that's been crawling at me. Uh, I uh, I think AJ Griffin's gonna fall out of the lottery. That's, oh, dude, you just stole mine. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. We didn't even talk about this one, and I got you on it. So this is you know what? If you don't remember last episode, you took Brandon from me in the mock draft. So this is this is my revenge. I got you back. So back to the drawing yeah, board, fair. buddy. That's fair. Alright. If you don't see if you don't hear any more talk with me about AJ Griffin, it's because I'm staring at my board looking for surprises. I yeah, just, I think I just have a sneaky suspicion that it's gonna happen. I I think teams are gonna prioritize some of like what you were saying, Tim, you know, the younger guys and like guys by that I'm looking at, you know, Usman Jang and I'm saying like yeah. it's not gonna surprise me if a team, you know, is like, Hey, let's take a swing with Usman Jang over AJ Griffin. Yeah, um, I don't know if you guys saw it, but in, in Adam Spinella's recent mock drafts, I think he had AJ Griffin um, 
projected to go 16th to be Atlanta Hawks. Oh, love it. Um, how do you feel about that, Jackson? Love it. But, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I said this on Twitter the other day. Like, I, I'd i be very surprised if the Hawks are picking at 16 come draft night. But, I mean, if we are picking at 16 and yeah. A.J. Griffin is on the board, d- don't send in the pick. Run in the pick. I mean, you you run in the, the pick. All right? That's all I got to say. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know how, you know, how much I'd bet on uh, AJ Griffin falling out of the lottery, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to bet against anything happening necessarily because um, it could really get wild. I think Johnny Davis has been a, a favorite um, as a surprise to fall out of the lottery. Um, I haven't seen AJ Griffin's name mentioned as much in that category, but um, if he if he does, I do think even though I'm on the lower side of AJ Griffin, I I think he's pretty comfortably a late lottery level prospect. But um, even if he does fall out of that, I think it, it's good value. And that's that's me saying there's someone who isn't the highest on him. Like if if any any of those teams like Charlotte, Atlanta, Houston, Chicago get him, that's pretty exciting. I'll, I'll say I don't think Johnny Davis drops out of the lottery, and that's. That's based on my own team fandom and following the Wizards pretty closely. I think Future unless Wizard. unless we see the Wizards move up, or unless maybe like Dyson falls to 10, I would b- bet money on Johnny Davis going there. I, I think that he just fits too well with what the Wizards want to do, and, and, and with, in, in a void where there aren't really that many high-level point guard prospects that you'd want to take in a lot of this year, I think he's kind of like the next next best uh, role fit for the Wizards going forward. So I, I would be surprised. And they've worked them out as well, I, I know. So I mean, uh, I, think, I think like Cleveland at 14, if Igbaji's like gone from 10 to 13, um, could be a floor, like an absolute floor for Johnny Davis. Um, especially if they're maybe looking at moving on from Colin Sexton. Um, but yeah, I Every time I make a mock draft, Johnny Davis goes either to the Wizards or the Knicks. So he isn't yeah. falling past eleven, not at all, not happening. He's he will not fall past the New York Knicks. Remember this: if he's on the board when the Knicks are picking, they're taking him. Remember yeah. me telling you all this. Yeah, I, I would say the same. Yeah, that's why um, I see his floor. Okay, right? so speaking of point guards, as I just mentioned, it, I do have another draft day surprise, which is that even though I think everyone in this. Uh, on this podcast would agree that this is one of the weakest point guard classes in quite a while at the top. There's actually surprisingly a lot of point guards on my board this year, but you know, most of them in like the late second, whatever. But this is one of the weaker point guard classes in a while, but I still think there are going to be five point guards taken in the first round mm. despite that. Mm. So who do you, who do you consider as a point guard? Like is Jaden yeah, so a point guard to you? Is Dyson so, a point guard? So that's partly what what helps because like you know there's uh, there's someone on Twitter that I follow who who and I was apologizing for not remembering who it was who said coining the term pure point guard was so toxic for NBA like oh, I saw that as well NBA discourse and I totally agree with that point like the point guards these like the idea of being a point guard is not just being a guy who can only play the one. It's about like having what you do with the ball in your hands, and I think Jaden Ivey definitely satisfies being a point guard under like that those kinds of ideas. You talk about maybe Blake Wesley being a point guard eventually. I'm not going to count him here. I think he's more of a two. But I've got Jaden Ivey, Dyson Daniels, I think Kennedy Chandler and Ty Ty Washington both get taken, 
then I think Andrew Nemhard might get taken the late first by a team that just needs to ha- ha- fill up their, you know, backup point guard spot. Oh, I mean, you look at Memphis sitting there at number 29. I think it would be difficult for them to pass up a guy like Nemhard to replace Tyus Jones, right? Yeah. I, I can totally see Nemhard going um, top 30. You go I mean, higher. it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's pretty crazy to think that uh, before the combine, he was a pretty common um, pick between like 50 and 60. Like, I mean, I did a mock and got him at 56 to the Wizards, uh, which I thought was like a, an excellent pick. But um, I mean, even even with those kind of like five point guards in the first round, um, there, there's still some interesting ones in the second, uh, like Alondis Williams, um, Jan Montero. I, th- I think both of them are probably more Jan have uh, potential to go in the first round as well. So yeah, even though it's obviously not a great point guard class, um, it doesn't mean point guards won't get selected there. Alright, so I guess my take wasn't that hot, because I got two people in agreement with me. Who said I agreed with you? (laughs) Oh, that's true. No, I mean... All right, I actually had to look at my board for this one. And all right, first of all, I, if you're classifying all the players that like you classified as point guards, as point guards, it's fine. Like I get it, but I, I, I'm going with the opposite of what you're talking about. Like, okay, okay, I, I'm putting all, I'm putting Ivy and Daniels as two guards. That's just how I am. Like, I mean, you can call them point guards if you want to. I, I'm not doing that. I'm, I, I like to consider myself old fashioned with how I position my players. <laughs> now, and I had to go through it, and I have wait. Uh, another toxic person in the community. Wow. All right, wait, hold on. Wow. This is a, this is really Can't bad. I should. Did Turquavion stay in the draft? No. Okay. <laughs> no. All right. Sorry. I, that was. <laughs> I I really should have known that before we podcast today. All right. I have two point guards in the first round then on my big board then, and then like, like a few more I can make an argument. I don't see it happening. I'm gonna keep it real. And that's a uh, Nimhard and Chandler, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no, I don't. No, I I just I don't think five. I don't. No, I disagree with that. Five point guards. I'm taking the under on that one. All right, that's fair. The thing is, if we're talking about like purely from our personal rankings, uh, I consider Jaden Ivy more of a, a two, but like I just list players as like guard, wing, forward, big, which is kind of kind of general. And I guess Daniels and Ivy are more like combo guards than necessarily point guards. Uh, but if if we're talking purely just like point guards, aside from them, I've got one in my top thirty, and that's Andrew Nembard at thirty. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be more about how teams generally like to draft than necessarily like uh, than maybe like what I would do. I think that uh, one thing that I think teams will probably be looking at right now is that the backup point guard market right now is pretty difficult, and, and like there's going to be a lot of fight for some of these names that are going to be on the market, and it might just be easier to sit draft with a late first in a class where maybe you don't value the talent that's in that range as much as you would most years, maybe just take the safe option and take a point guard and just bow out of the backup point guard uh, sweepstakes this year for agency. I just want to say something to you, Tim. Uh, I liked your positions. You know, you said, you know, I list guys as guard, wing, big, forward, all that. You know, I actually, uh, I like to go by a position manual. I like to look at some guys' hybrid guards, you know what I mean? But what what were you saying? Uh What was that? Sorry? I, I asked, what were you saying before I interrupted you? I, I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> now I feel bad. Any, any more hot takes you guys have? Yeah, I've got, I've got a couple. Um, okay, the first one is 
pretty mediocre, but I, I want to get you guys' thoughts on it. So, um, Gabriel Pachita, top 25 on draft night. Ooh. No. I gotta look at Philadelphia. I gotta look at the draft order Antonio. here. No. What about top 30? No. Um, I think top 30 is possible. I think the, I, th- I think I think Oklahoma City like trading out from number thirty really hurts because I th- feel like if they had stayed there they definitely would have stashed somebody. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I don't know. What if what if Philadelphia wants to I, take a swing on like a a Corkmas type player again, which I think Prochita is, but got a bit more upside. Yeah, I, I'm gonna what say probably. I guess it's a good hot take because I would say that it would be like less likely to happen, but not impossible. Like oh, I, I could definitely see a team here. doing it. I just want to say okay. That. The next the next one's comparatively wild. Um, I mentioned it on Twitter, and then uh, in, a, in, a, in our group chat, um, someone that sent a kind of like a confused emoji reaction to it, which was kind of offensive. That person knows who they are. Uh, but okay, um, this is a guy who I think. Could be a wild out of nowhere lottery pick, and that is uh, Ishmael Kamagate. Oh, lottery! It's a, lottery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm I mean, I don't, sure he, I don't remember who it was, and I don't even know if it's y'all. I think what he y'all called Kamagate a stash prospect the other day. And oh, that was me. <laughs> yeah. And now, oh, no, that, no, we're not going to go in the lottery. Wait, you think someone's going to take him in the lottery okay. and stash him? It's happened before. Has it? Like, okay, hear me out. Uh, if I'm, if I'm a, I mean, stashes have to be agreements, right? Like, if somebody wants to come over, they come over, right? I also feel like if you're the stash guy, you can yeah. just get them later. Like, there's not a, there's not a lot of competition for. Oh yeah, you're more staffing this guy. Like, yeah, we, we, we never see teams who are like logical and rational about. No, they're not. They're, they're like, okay, not. Hear me out, and my hear next me take out. will have something so, to do with that. I'm not talking like top ten. I'm talking like eleven to fourteen. But here's, here's a few scenarios I'm thinking of. So Oklahoma City at two. They take they take Holmgren and they they view Holmgren as more of like a, a power forward kind of similar to how Mobley's being used by the Cavaliers, um, or maybe they do still view him as a five because it still works. And then they get to the twelfth pick and um, Duran's off the board. They, they 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 didn't get that. Maybe Mark Williams is off the board to like New York, or they're just not interested in him. Um, or maybe they are, they are interested in him, but don't necessarily want to bring someone over straight away. What if they what if they pick Kamigata at twelve? Um, they can either kind of have this idea of like a Holmgren uh, Kamigate four five and really bolster their front court, uh, or it could just be hey we're going to fill out our five position as much as possible. We really like Kamigate, and uh, we've seen teams just absolutely overreach on players before. It happens. Um, whether Oklahoma's the team to do that, maybe. Um, and then an- another destination could be Charlotte. Um, I don't think that one <laughs> uh, holds as much weight as a as a really out there prediction due to Charlotte's draft history. Um, but I mean, it's another team uh, in the market for a big man, um, someone who could catch lobs. Um, you know, play a bit of defense. Wonder if you can coach the team I, as well. I, I don't know if if there is one wild, wild, absolutely wild um, Adelaide field pick to happen. I think Kamigata is like a guy who it could be. I think like. What would prevent me from seeing it is just the fact that I, I haven't really like heard enough at, like attention in that range from teams to think that a team a team wouldn't just trade back for him, you know. Papa Giannis uh, was projected as a fortieth, fiftieth pick or something. 
Fair. Yeah, but but Sacramento <laughs> isn't picking 14th this year, unfortunately. Yeah, but yeah, but the the San Antonio Spurs. Kamigate at four. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Kamigate over Chiang. Granted, let's let's discuss. <laughs> he was playing against men. Who was Chet playing against? Look into it. Um, I'm ready to give my hot take, and I'm just saying before we get into this, Garrett. I hope you have some defibrillators nearby. Maybe even you, uh-uh. Tim. I'm about to say a few names, and I think you'll felt you fellas will know right where I'm going with this one. Here's the names: Isaiah uh-huh. Jackson, Kai Jones, Dayron Sharp, Sante Aldama, <laughs> and I got a few more. Wait a minute, hold up. Isaiah Stewart, Oduka Azabuki. You know what all those guys have in common? Those were probably centers that probably should have gone in the second round. But teams, and like Tim, you said this earlier. Teams sometimes are illogical and irrational with who they pick. So I'm thinking of, you know, big men, particularly at the center position, who get taken in the first when they probably shouldn't. And uh, I think y'all fellas know right where I'm going with this one. I'm talking about none other than Orlando Robinson. I uh, My hot take is he's going in the first round. <laughs> Five days from now, everybody. I want you to remember this because I was the one who told you this. I'm, I get, you have the... You have the Jackson guarantee. Orlando Robinson will be t- taken in the first round come Thursday night. Just remember this Two when it happens. The, I wouldn't. There's a bunch of teams who could take him. And like, listen, are we are are the Bucks like are they above taking like a random like they took that like one guy didn't they in the second like just Sam Nuggets as well Grizzlies Warriors Heat I don't know they all seem like teams who are just you know itching to do it i i feel like there's they see the size of orlando robinson they take a blind eye to his uh you know his movement speed and uh they they like they like the shooting touch and hey we're cooking so i my, my hot take is he going in the first round come thursday night remember this i'm hearing a lot of projection well, is, onto these nba teams <laughs> <laughs> the thing is these are there's um i feel like there's so much room for just chaos and like, he, here's some other names which I feel like could also go in the first similar to, like, the Orlando Robinson style. Like, um, what if what if Michael Foster goes in the first round? Oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah, yeah. And then um, oh, some other names. Like, what if what if Zozo goes in the first round? Some team just oh, thinks man. he's, like, future. Giannis. Pascal Siakam. And they're all yeah. in. I, I will yeah. say, like, in, in Kev's defense here, I do think... I'm looking at the back end of this first round and thinking this is like one of the weakest back ends of the first round I've ever seen in a draft. Why don't I just take a shot? T- draft a guy who's just hasn't really done anything to interest me other than just showing off athletic tools or flashes every once in a while. Why don't I just take that guy and I believe in my team's development. I'm just going to spend four years on this guy rather than someone else who's you know just going to be a role player. I mean, like, this would be the draft for that, right? So I think that this would be the first round where, like, you just see, like, I don't know. I, it's not going to be Orlando Robinson, I don't think. But if you see a center who, you know, can score at all three levels and and seems to have, like, a good feel for the game on both sides of the floor, you know, why wouldn't why wouldn't a team maybe just see that profile and maybe get interested? I, I could see it, but just maybe not Orlando Robinson. I think it's going to be good. Also, I, this isn't a hot take. I just want to get this take out here. Where did Moses, Moses Moody get picked last year? 14. Okay, yeah, Jaden Hardy's going before that. Remember that as well. I don't feel like that's a hot take, though. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like there's been steam about him recently, so I don't feel like that's a hot take, but I wanted to say that. That's all for me, though. So be prepared right. for when the, the Orlando Robinson pick gets announced, and Adam Silver's going to be doing it, assuming he's back. All right, I have one more prediction question that I'm looking at okay. here. 
And, and if you all need help with me going down the order, I can. But my question is, how many lottery picks get traded on draft night? Ooh. Um, I tell you what, I have, we have the same group chat. I am sending the order now if you need a little bit of help. I'm looking at the lottery order. I, uh, I'm i going to say like four. I have three. At the most. I But I only have three because I have like a... I don't. I, th- I said this to y'all in our group chat the other. I don't know if I can say it on the podcast, but there's a a team who's talked about trading a lot, and that that I've heard they are locked in at their spot. So I. Th- but if you guys, I said that in our group chat the other day. If, so you can guys can look back to that. I don't know if I can say it on here though. So that's why I go three, and those teams are Portland and then uh, Charlotte and Cleveland. But I feel like everyone else is going to make yeah. their pick. Yeah, I, I see. Thinking... I see that Thunder pick getting moved personally, like number twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could see Charlotte maybe packaging those two first together to move up. Portland maybe. Um, who knows what the Wizards are doing? They, the Wizards seem to like trading their first these days. Yeah, I, I would probably go four or five. Yeah, I'm thinking the Sacramento pick could probably be moved. Um, maybe for one of those teams, kind of like five to seven. And then also, yeah, the OKC pick. Charlotte and Cleveland are the other ones. So, I don't know. It's hard to say. Do you, what, what is it like? Re- not reasonably, but what is a relatively um, likely but wild trade that could happen? Like, do we think Houston could move three in any situation or that they're just they're locked in? No, but they're trading 17 for that uh, Monty Morris. Look out for that one. Get ready for it. It's coming soon. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> Write it down. I, th- I think Houston, based on the fact that they've now, like, we know that they hosted Paolo Bencaro and, like, have done a lot of their due diligence on him, I think that's the guy, if we're assuming he's there at three. The one that interests me is, like, we all know that Oklahoma City is at some point going to go all in on a draft, right? There's going to be mm-hmm. one. They just have too many picks. When are they going to do it? Can they pull off, and maybe it takes a third team, moving from 12 to 4? Yeah, if, I think it's totally possible. Like, I don't think Sacramento would be okay with moving from 4 to 12. Uh, and I'm going to be citing a trade that I sent to you all a while back. I don't think they'd be comfortable moving back to 12 without getting like a, a good win-now player. And Oklahoma City's win-now player is Shea, and they're not doing that. What about Ludor? <laughs> so, They'll take Ludor. So that's part of the idea here. Is like, what if you know Portland has suggested they might be willing to move back? What if Portland moved back to 12, Sacramento moved to 7, Oklahoma City moved to 4, and you just see Lou Dort and a bunch of firsts moving around all those teams to make that big move that Oklahoma City is looking to make. Because maybe, you know, 2023, every team's going to know 2023 is a great draft. Maybe Oklahoma City gets there and teams just aren't willing to budge because they value it just as much as Oklahoma City Who does, does. Oklahoma City I, take it for in this scenario? I think that's going to be the case. Ivy? It, in that scenario, they'd be moving up for Ivy, yeah. Okay, and then the Kings are 100% taking Keegan Murray, right? There was some rumors that they love him, and that's just like the normal. That's not even like the Warriors, who also apparently like him a lot. Yeah, if he's there at 7, I think they would. Yeah, all right, and then, yeah, the other team doesn't matter. They'll take, like, whoever's left. They'll get over it. Yeah, I, I think next next year would be the ideal year to try and leap into kind of, like, the top four or top five with another pick. 
Um, but I don't think teams are going to move next year. Uh, they're going to know that they want their guys, and no matter how many assets OKC might be willing to give up, I don't think they're going to be able to pull it off. Like, um, I think it gets to a point where the assets are just overwhelming, and you can't package that many together. Yeah. Like, so, I, like it's going to get worse every the year. Value they have because it, it becomes harder to trade them together. Yeah, it's going to get worse every year. Like, there might be some teams right now that just don't really understand how bad of a situation Oklahoma's going to Oklahoma City is going to get with these assets, where they're going to have like picks in the in like the late twenties, where they just have to just fire sale them because they have no way of getting those guys on the roster, or they're going to have to like pick international guys, you know, fifteen spots above where they would take them because that they don't have roster spots, and like. You know, teams are just going to start knowing more and more as the roster crunch continues that Oklahoma City needs to move these picks so they're really not as valuable as you'd think. I think this is the year. Jump jump now while teams are still not like necessarily aware of that and just strike while the iron's hot. Yeah, yeah, agreed. It's, it's an unfortunate that it's this year that you'd kind of have to do that, but, I mean, go for it. Hey, when they get the number one overall prospect at, at number four, that's a good move. Dude, I'm right. looking at the betting odds market for the NBA draft because I'm like a real degenerate. I just want to say for some reason, <laughs> so there's like people, there's like enough people who have actually like placed bets on a certain prospect who may or may not be from the Philippines to where he's actually showing up on this like thing. So you can do that information what oh, you want. Wow. <laughs> he's plus 25,000. So you could, I mean, hey, if it happens. But no, what I want to say is Bancaro at third overall picks out of Houston, that's like negative 550. I did not know that. And has, yeah, has I think I think the fact that we second. know and have seen photos that Houston has met with Paolo is like pretty good, pretty strong sign. So, wait, who do y'all think going one? Oh, Jabari, gosh. Jabari. I, I just have to believe the intel. I don't like. I know there's some incentive for Orlando to throw smoke, but I think at this point they're locked in at number one. I think one, they're taking so Chet until we until we hear that they're taking Chet. I'm like just gonna trust what people are saying. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, I think I think they take shit. I, I, I don't know if you guys saw it, but uh, there was a TikTok, and uh, Jonathan Isaac is apparently back in the locker room. So, I mean, I guess he's going to finally give, you know, he's taking the hiatus from his other career, which, you know, may or may not be a correspondent <laughs> for only American News Network. Um, anyways, uh, I, I th- yeah, I feel like they're going to take shit. They're going to they're gonna punt on Wendell Carter Jr. to the sadness of Garrett, and they're going to take shit. He's good. A lot of people have talked about him, Wendell Carter Jr., as a hot trade target, and I, I, every time they say it, I think of you. Yeah, that would be a good move. And yeah, thanks for thinking of me. Of course. I'll All right. <laughs> I'm, I'll be asking next year for the will you marry me question. All right, yeah. No, I'll be saying yes be to that. be an annual question. <laughs> annual question. Anybody, anybody have anything else, or are we done here? And, uh, I think I'm out of hot takes for predictions. Okay. Garrett, you got anything? Yeah. I, I was I was already scavenging for them, so I'm good. All right, well, you know what? Just everybody remember, anytime you ever feel something, just remember, I stole Garrett's A.J. Griffin take before he did because I went second and not third. All right, anyways, that'll do it for episode number six of the Draft Class Dropouts podcast. We just want to say thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out the description where you can find the links to our Twitters and all that. You can give us a follow, and yeah, you can keep up with us on Twitter. I think our next episode is probably going to be an episode after the draft, you know, kind of just talking about what happened at the draft. Maybe some winners and losers, and uh, maybe, we, maybe we talk about who should get fired because that'll probably definitely happen. But as always, just want to say thank you for listening. Hope you have a good weekend and a good week. Goodbye.